You can get your Bibles out and find 1 Samuel. I'm going to be reading out of 1 Samuel 17 here in just a moment. While you're finding 1 Samuel 17, I do want to recognize the fact that we have Laura Higgins with us here this morning. And Laura, we're so glad you came through and saying hi to everybody and trust you're doing well. And as I understand, you're, you're walking for two right now. Is that two or three? Oh, see what you get for drinking the water around here for so long. So anyway, we're glad you're here. Appreciate the years with you and we welcome you. We want to continue our uh, message series that we started last week that we entitled We Win. As we began service this morning, I also mentioned to you that this is the 10-year anniversary of 9-11 and to both memorialize this event and use it as a springboard uh, to continue our series. I uh, wanted just to uh, remind you by showing you what I think to be is a, an inspiring uh, video and DVD. So uh, watch the screen overhead as the lights go out and uh, we watch 9-11. You might ask yourself the question, how in the world can a DVD on 
uh, be used to open a message on a series that's entitled, We Win. Well, the truth is, there have been all sorts of forces and pressures uh, put to bear on the church to cause us to lose a victory mentality. The attack on the World Trade Center, uh, along with the attack on the Pentagon and the crash that took place out in the fields of Pennsylvania, was strategically used by our enemies and by the enemy to change the mentality of our culture. Our enemies wanted us to realize that we are not immune to destruction. They wanted us to know that we could no longer be comfortable in feeling like we were somehow safe because there were oceans on both sides of us. They wanted us to realize in a first-hand way that we could experience defeat on our own property in our own nation. Our enemies told us as a culture that they wanted us to live in fear. They wanted us to live in timidity. And unfortunately, at some levels, it is becoming ingrained in our national psyche. And the reason I think it's become ingrained in our American psyche is because we have lost in America our sense of God consciousness. You see, when you lose your sense of God consciousness, you will fall prey to fear. You will fall prey to doubt and to pessimism about all sorts of things. I mean, if your only hope is in man's best effort, how many of you realize that can become fairly futile looking in a hurry? There's pessimism about the future economy. There's, there's pessimism about our national security. There's pessimism about whether or not any jobs will be available in the foreseeable future. When you lose a sense of the divine, you will always lose your sense of optimism. That is why our job as the church is so critical. Because the church is the place that is the leavening effect in a culture to keep its God consciousness. There's no other institution or organization that has the ability like the church does, nor the call, in order to seed society with the truth that Jesus lives and he's victorious. When we lose God consciousness, we automatically fall into despair. And so you and I must maintain and uh, continue to, to generate and solicit our optimism through God because we're the ones that have to go to a culture and remind them just who is in charge. But therein lies the problem. The church has been sucked into the pessimism of the culture. If we hope to see people, marriages, families, and our nation changed, then we've got to understand that change begins in this room this morning. Our culture won't change until the church begins to change. That's why even God said that judgment doesn't begin in the culture. Judgment starts at the house of God. Not in order to destroy us, but to renew us and to revive us and to restore us. He knows that unless his people get their act together, no one else will get their act together. And so we've got to get our corporate sense of victory again. Our corporate sense of optimism. Not because of who we are, but because of who he is in us. And that makes all the difference 
in the world. Now, I want to read to you a passage out of 1 Samuel 17, a familiar passage. You'll know it instantly. And I've entitled the message this morning, How We Lost a Victory Mentality. How We Lost a Victory Mentality out of 1 Samuel 17. And uh, as soon as I read it, you're going to instantly know it. But listen to the words. Verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle and were gathered at Sukkau, which belongs to Judah. They encamped between Sukkau and Azekah in Ephes uh, Damum. Wow, I could get in trouble with that word right there. All right, verse 2. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. As best as we can ascertain, he was somewhere in the area of nine feet tall. Amazing, amazing size. He had a bronze helmet on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail and the weight of the coat was five thousand shekels of bronze which is about 130 pounds and he had bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels and a shield bear went before him now all of this information is being given to us simply to tell you this man was a man's man Nine feet tall, and he's, and he's carrying literally, I, I mean, 150 pounds or more of armor and weaponry on him. I don't know if any of you have just carried those 50-pound bags of feed or salt or whatever it is you might get in a 50-pound bag size. But you think about that for just a minute. You get from Lowe's or Home Depot, wherever you're going, and you throw that on your shoulder and carry that around for a little bit, and that'll wear you out. Just 50 pounds. He's got probably 150 pounds on him, a man's man. Verse 8. Then he, meaning Goliath, stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able. Now, isn't that an interesting word? You remember what we talked about last week? When Caleb said, We are well able. Now, Goliath is using the very same word and it's turning on the children of Israel again, the armies of Israel. He said, if he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And then verse 11 is really one I want to zero in on. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine. They were dismayed and greatly afraid. How we lost our victory mentality. Now, you are probably aware now the story is the one concerning what ultimately will be the showdown between David and Goliath. It is a familiar story to most of us. And for most of us, the emphasis is placed on little David. David uh, bringing a lunch out to the brothers on the battlefield, sees what's going on, ultimately steps in and becomes the hero of the day as he is the one who slays Goliath. And for most of us, the story 
revolves around this individual, David. I'll say it again. It revolves around the individual. And the reason we like the story of David is because we see ourselves as an individual and we somehow want to identify with David facing this Goliath. He comes forth with the victory and certainly nothing wrong with that and it's certainly the, a point in the story. However, I think we need to stop and pause for just a moment because we miss the dynamics of the we that's going on in the army of Israel. Now, you may not know all that came up to this point, but I'll just give you a quick rundown. Saul had become king over all of Israel. For those of you who remember, Saul started out extremely well. He was a humble man. He, uh, to be candid, had to be solicited into kingship. When they were uh, trying to find out God's will with regards to a king, he was actually hiding behind some boxes and some baggage, and they had to, had to pull him out from behind the baggage even to, to get him to accept kingship over all of Israel. He started out very well. Saul was likable. He was attractive. He had lots of skills. He had humility, and God would use that humility. But it wasn't a year or two into all of this that suddenly the success that had come to Saul, I guess, began to feed his ego. Things began to turn inside of him, and he became a rebellious and presumptuous king. Can I just share this with you? There are so many good little points in here. Never believe your own press. You ain't that good. I appreciate what my wife said today, and it honors me, and, and everybody likes a few words of affirmation, but I, I've learned some things, especially these last years. You just, you just never believe your own press. I mean, you learn to be a good diverter, giving glory to God. You learn to be just, just a little humble, because if you won't humble yourself, God will humble you. That's, that's his choice. He says you either humble yourself under my mighty hand or my mighty hand will humble you. I'll just choose my own if you don't mind. And Saul didn't learn that. Maybe he became successful too quickly. Sometimes success, when it comes quickly to individuals, it instantly goes to their head and they get a brain cramp and their ego inflates and they get into all sorts of trouble. Watch what happens to celebrities and athletes when they all of a sudden become superstars some of them seem to handle it. Many of them, though, seem to crash. And Saul appears to be one of these stories. He, he instantly has this ego problem and this presumption problem, and he begins to compromise himself before the Lord. And what ultimately happens in his life is that through these compromises that he faces, he literally opens a door up in his spirit, and he becomes filled with demons. So much so that it starts out with just simple insecurity. He starts out being insecure of David, who had really no design in, in, in deposing him from his kingship. David was there to help Saul. But yet he was threatened by David. And, and so he had opened these doors of compromise in his life. And now someone who was meant to help him was causing him to be insecure. And, and he would do everything in order to, to feed and appease the demonic influence instead of seeking to be set free. Never cut a deal with the devil. He doesn't keep them. Until finally at the end of Saul's life, you find him going to the witch at Endor, wanting a witch to conjure up the dead soul of Samuel the prophet in order that he can get some direction in the situation he was facing. He was filled. Filled with fear. Filled with insecurity. 
filled with demonic influence. And I want to share this because this is a message that I preach to myself at this point. And that is there are some things, unfortunately, that do flow from the head. Israel was in fear. Israel was in pessimism. Israel had opened up the doors in their ranks. Why? Because Saul had opened himself up to it. He allowed it to take place within the nation. And they lived in such fear and and such timidity that it emboldened the Philistines and in particular it emboldened Goliath to step out onto a battlefield and and with his voice taunt the armies of Israel. Now think about this. Having a long history of God's power showing up in, in, in Israel, having a long history of miracle moments with the Lord with regards to how the enemy was, was going to be fought, now all of a sudden there's an enemy standing in the valley taunting the armies of the living God, taunting Saul, and they were paralyzed. Paralyzed in fear. It's not all that unlike today. Our pulpits in America have been compromised like Saul. They're filled with fear, filled with insecurity. They've even opened up their lives to demonic influence in all forms and fashions. I hate to say that. It's not like that's something that that brings me great joy to say, but, but we've been compromised. And the army of God today, His church, is being taunted. And we live in fear. We live in pessimism. We look amongst ourselves and we say, well, who's going to take on that Goliath? We don't know what to do with the Philistines we face. We don't know what to do with the media. We don't know what to do with a government which is increasingly becoming more hostile to our Christian faith. We don't know what to do with the educational system who values and venerates just about everything we stand against. What do we do with Hollywood? What do we do with the celebrities? What do we do with all of these people who now get on cable news networks and they taunt us and they ridicule our faith? They ridicule our values. They they ridicule our God and they do it with impunity. It undermines our marriages. It undermines our families. It undermines our foundational structures. And the minute we even suggest something else might be right or or advantageous to follow, we're instantly taunted back into our corners. Just like Saul in the armies of Israel. There in the valley of Elah, listening to Goliath. So are we as the church. Listening to the taunts of our modern day Philistines. And we're paralyzed in dismay. We're paralyzed in fear. Well, how in the world, how in the world, pastor, did we reach this point? Well, look at Saul's life. I I mentioned it briefly, but, but my feeling is that if we don't get how we ended up where we are, we are likely to fall into the same hole again. So much like Saul, there are several things we need to see. Number one is that Saul became cavalier about his successes. Saul became used to success and he lost, as I mentioned, a sense of humility. I was on a national phone call with many pastors. And again, I don't say this with any sense of 
of, of glee. And I believe that there's an appropriate sense of covering on occasion. But I also believe that there's an appropriate sense of sharing because it helps us all maintain perspective. But I was on a call with some pastors and a report was given, and, and it was a firsthand report, that an evangelical pastor was asked to go out to California, Southern California, and meet with now the aging Robert Schuler. And for those of you that don't know, there's been a lot of a lot of shakeup and a lot of goings on that has been in the newspapers. It's been on the internet. It's it's not anything that's been hidden. But there's been a lot of shakeup that's gone on at the Crystal Cathedral. You may love Robert Schuler, and if you do, that's great. There are probably some things that he's done well. I will tell you, there are some things that I probably wouldn't have done. But nonetheless, the shakeup has happened, and now all of a sudden they tell me this church that once ran thousands now runs two services with almost 300 people in each service. This man came in order to talk with the aging Robert Schuler. The church is now in bankruptcy. And the quote was from this once very notable uh, servant of the Lord, this one notable minister that was on maybe every channel in our nation. He looked and he looked at this evangelical pastor and he said, I don't even know what to do anymore. Cavalier about your success. You know, we sing that song, the Lord gives and the Lord takes. You, you better understand that if you're walking in blessing right now, give the glory to God. Because seasons can change. Let me tell you, I can tell you seasons can change. I've learned to value good seasons. And I've learned, I've learned this. I have little to do with a good season. It's God that has everything to do with it. If, it, if you think it's you, you've got a lesson come in your direction. And, and let me just say this. You may say it's all the Lord and not you, but if that's in your heart, he sees that. We become cavalier, I think, even in the church about our success. Number two, he became compromised in his devotion. Saul was always on the edge in his devotion. After he became king, I mentioned there was a year or two that he did ostensibly pretty well. But then it was interesting. Saul didn't just crash instantly, but he began to crash slowly. And he did so by finding loopholes in his obedience. I find that interesting. Loopholes in his obedience. He found places where he could dodge or he could compromise his obedience. Some of you who know his story may remember that he was to wait until Samuel came one time in order to provide sacrifice before the army went into another battle. Well, apparently Saul was on a time schedule and he didn't want to wait for Samuel. And so he presumed upon the office of the priest and he performed the sacrifice. And Samuel comes along and he uh, calls Saul on the carpet about this and says, what's the deal? You weren't supposed to do it this way. You were supposed to wait on me. You, you weren't even called to do anything like this. Saul had stepped out of his office and into an office he wasn't called to. And Samuel uh, calls him on this thing. And of course, Saul's response is simply this. He's just, you know, he's just being expedient. He's just doing time management. Come on, God would want me to do time management. And think about this. Saul did something that was spiritual. But he was still in rebellion. Wow. I think that revelation just needs to settle on us for just a minute. Saul did something that was spiritual, but he did it out of order. 
That's where it started. That's where his rebellion started. He couldn't say, well, hey, hey, you know what, Samuel? I was born just like you. I put my toga on like you do. Who are you to think you're the only one that can do sacrifice? I've watched you do it a thousand times. Anybody can do it. I just did it. And after all, you are taking your sweet time, maybe lollygagging. I'm trying to get this show on the road. And Samuel says that your sin is as the sin of witchcraft. That at that moment, witchcraft settled in. Doesn't that blow your mind? Blew mine when I started reading it. That's where, that's where his disobedience started. He just didn't wake up one morning and said, Oh, I tell you what, I'm going to go see the European psychic today. That's what I'll do today. I think that sounds good. I'll just go get my input from the psychic. It's not how it started. It started when he was doing something spiritual, but it was compromising what he knew. Listen, we have loophole believers today. Sure you do. You're going to find any loophole, just like your kids do. Your kids are the same way. Isn't it true? Our kids will find loopholes in our instructions. I mean, I've raised kids, still got one in the house. It is amazing to me how I think I've got my bases covered and they find the loophole. Things I hadn't even thought of. There's a loophole. And they're right, it's a, it seems to be a loophole. But you know the spirit of what I was trying to communicate. Right? A loophole. You know? Like, you know, I, I, we, we, I remember one time years ago with Clay, we had told him, we don't want you hanging around or we don't want you driving around. That I think that's what we said, driving around with these boys. I think that's how we said it. So what he did was he set it up that he would meet them somewhere so he didn't have to drive with them. That's, and, and, and can I just say this? On that particular day, it got him into trouble, not with me, but in even greater forms than that. I won't go into that story today. But it started with little compromises. Loopholes. We loophole things. We twist things in order that we get what we want. We twist, we twist our, our freedom and liberty to mean I can, I, I'm just going to do what I want and God's okay with it. I mean, we twist. We find loopholes all the time. Compromise. Thirdly, much like Saul, we've become confused in our doctrine. Say, how did they reach this place of fear and timidity? Well, they were cavalier about their success. They compromised their devotion. And they were a little confused in their doctrine. Saul, Saul made rash oaths. I already mentioned he presumed upon Samuel's office with the sacrifice. He, made, he just made up his rules as he went along. Made up his own doctrine. He just expected God to maintain whatever it was he had made up. And it had reached the place... That there was confusion in the ranks. They no longer could see what, what God would endorse and what God wouldn't endorse. And, and, and because of that, they'd lost their victory mentality. Can I just share with you, I, I, I've been asked here in a couple months when we go to Band of Brothers, I was asked in particular to share with the men while we gather there to, to teach them about how we as a church have... Uh, doctrinally lost our optimistic and our victory mentality. I've, I've been asked to just zero in on that because if, if we do not understand as men and as we don't understand as the church about optimism and victory, what happens is we become culturally irrelevant. You see, if you, think, if you don't think victory before you hit a battle, you've already lost your battle. And if we don't get victory back into the psyches of the American Christian and the American church, we are not going to win 
the current battles that are facing all of us. You won't win in your marriage. If you don't think your marriage can succeed and right now you don't believe that'll happen, it won't happen. Are you following me? You got to believe your marriage can go the distance and it will go the distance. You got to believe, you got to believe your family can prevail and it will prevail. Now that's not to say there's not going to be some challenges along the way because the enemy's going to challenge you every step of the way. But the key is you can't base your mentality on the particular battle you're at. You've got to begin to see the big picture. We win. See, I win. I am unstoppable because he is unstoppable in me. You're following me. I'm going to share this with you real super fast. Are you ready to listen to a quick history lesson real fast? I mean, I mean, in the church now, understand, I believe, I believe personally in a premillennial view of end times. I believe that. I call myself, though, an optimistic premillennialist. The reason I call myself optimistic is because most premillennialists are not optimistic. And, and I'm going to share with you how this works. Uh, there was a guy by the name of uh, John Nelson Darby who in 1830 was in Dublin, Ireland at a small Bible study. And he came to this Bible study and he began to teach them on a way to interpret the Bible that was called dispensationalism. And what dispensationalism is, listen to me now, don't, don't flake out, I'm only going to be here about two minutes, so you, but this is so critical. What dispensationalism is, is that it, it brings to bear on the Scripture an understanding that God works certain ways in certain time periods or dispensations. And so God moved this way in this dispensation, and then that was over. He moved this way in this dispensation, that was over. He moved this way in this dispensation. And there are anywhere, I've seen this taught, anywhere from two dispensations, Old and New Testament, to nine dispensations. And I've seen it taught anywhere in between. Now, there's nothing ostensibly wrong with that. It's just a way of trying to understand the Bible. I'm not saying it's bad or wrong. It's just a way to try to understand the Bible. But his... His protege, his student, his name was C.I. Schofield. And Schofield took what Darby, his teacher, said, and he added a little twist to it. His twist was that God not only worked in dispensations, but whatever God did in that dispensation, that's the only dispensation he would do that in. So in other words, once this dispensation was over and you went to this dispensation, God might do something in this one, but he would never repeat himself in that one again. Are you following me? That's called cessationism. God ceased to do anything more. That's why some of your friends will look at you when you talk about miracles and you talk about the power of God and the book of Acts and they'll look at you and say, well, that was for that time period, but that's not for today because they're functioning under the dispensational cessationism. Isn't that a word? You get your prayer language off that and they wouldn't even like that. But that is why, that is why they look at you and say, no, 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 that, that happened in that time period. It was only for that time period. It is a never to be repeated again time period. We've got the word of God. Oftentimes they'll say nowadays. And so nowadays, well, God might do it, but probably not. Because he did that then, but it has ceased. Now, let's take this out to now the future. For many, many people, when they talk about the future, then... And, they, and you've heard this taught on all sorts of ways. That, that Remember the seven churches of the book of the Revelation? And that those churches referred to ages? And that the last church... What's the last church in the book of the Revelation? Laodicea. I'll just tell you. I could tell you. 
It's Laodicea. It's the lukewarm church. It's the compromised church. It's the church that has lost all a semblance of witness and light and fervency and passion. And I've heard it taught that this is the Laodicean age. Can I just share this with you? This is where I am. Now, again, I'm premillennial in my viewpoints. And anybody that's heard me teach on the end times knows exactly where I'm at. So don't you walk away and say, I've changed because I haven't changed one inch on what I believe and how I've taught it here. But I'm going to tell you this. You can find a Laodicean church in every age. I can go all over and find Laodicean churches. It's easy. And they've been here all the time. But here's the key. I don't believe that this church or even the church is locked into a Laodicean mentality. But if we do, and if we think that way, then what we end up doing is we end up saying, well, everything's getting worse and worse. Apostasy's happening. The whole culture's deteriorating. Come, Lord Jesus, you must be coming in the next 24 hours. Because everything's getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. Well, I believe Jesus could indeed come in the next 24 hours. Listen to me, though. Here's what I believe more than that. I believe in the imminent return. But Jesus said, occupy until I come. Do business, he said, literally, until I come. And this is what I believe. I believe he is trying to revive a church into its, into its uh, power and glory that he always envisioned for it. And that we're not leaving this place with our tail between our legs like a doormat because we've been stomped on by the world and the devil. No, sir, I'm leaving this, this place like a glorious church without spot or wrinkle, washed in the blood of the Lamb. I'm leaving this church casting out devils, believing in miracles, moving in the power of God. He may snatch me away and I'll just... We're taking swings as we're just going. We got to get this in our psyche. But the church predominantly, the church predominantly has bought into the mentality of impotency. So much so, and again, I'm not throwing stones, I'm just giving you perspective. We have more confidence in getting a bunch of, of good Christian lawyers and going into courtrooms, which I believe we still need to do, and, and using our natural faculties to try to fight the culture. When the Bible says that our weapons are not carnal, but they're divinely powerful for the destruction of strongholds and fortresses. And while I'm grateful for Christian lawyers and attorneys who will fight for my rights in a courtroom and it needs to be done, I ultimately know that the real battle's in the spirit and the real battle is going to take the power of God. And there's got to be a church that believes in the power of God and believes in healing and believes in victory and believes that we may not be winning this day in 2011, but one year from now, God can turn this thing around. But somebody's got to start believing this stuff. And yes, it starts when we pray for healing and that God heals. It be I believe, yes, do you, do you believe in all the gifts of the Spirit? Yes, I do. Because I've got to pray things that my natural mind can't wrap itself around. I've got to have a language that gets to God another way. I, listen, you don't have to check your brain out at the door to believe that. And you can hold to whatever eschatology you want. But that's where we're at today. 
We're fighting with carnal people and using carnal weapons. When if we would begin to understand as the church again, that if we would get on, that more goes on profitably at times at 9.30 to about 9.50 on Sunday morning. Because we are pounding heaven. And we believe God moves. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's how we got here. We ceased believing that God could show up. What has this produced? That wasn't all in my notes, by the way. I just kind of... What has this produced? Well, it's produced a sense of fatalism. Lethargy, apathy. We, we begin to say, I'm sorry, dumb things like, well, I guess it's just God's will. Because God's will, I'm just getting a hang beat out of me. I guess it's God's will. I guess I'm going to be sick the rest of my life. I guess it's just God's will. I guess I'm going to be poor the rest of my life. I guess it's God's will. I, 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 I guess unrighteous people are always going to run the nation. I guess it's just God's will. Who am I to challenge? Who am I to challenge what must be God's will? But it's the purposes of God. It must be. It must be. Listen, I believe God knows outcomes and endings. But that does not absolve us from engaging in the battle. Can I just suggest to you this little thought? God knew that David would knock down Goliath. David knew it too. But he still had to toss a stone. Are you following me? You can know all sorts of things, but until you implement, it doesn't mean that it's going to happen. David knew God, God was in covenant with him and, and he picked up the stone and when he threw it, he was fully confident, but he had to get engaged. That's how come we keep praying for the sick. We keep delivering people. We keep declaring righteousness. We keep pressing the claims of Christ in the culture. We keep moving forward with the kingdom message. We keep doing it. Why? Because we believe we win. We win. Number two. What does it produce? No sense of longevity for the battle. I believe Jesus is coming soon. I probably could get an amen on that one, couldn't I? Jesus is coming soon. I believe that. I've already told you, though, I'm optimistic. I'm an optimistic premillennial believer. Jesus told us, listen, I'm telling you, he also said this. He said, you keep occupying. Not just, that doesn't mean just take up space. It, it means you keep doing the will of the Father. I need to function as a believer like there are a thousand generations behind me. I can believe Jesus. I believe Jesus could come tonight. I believe that. But I've got a function like I've got grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren yet to come. i still got to think in those terms because no man knoweth the day or the hour, ultimately. I think we are close. But whether I think I'm, we're close or not doesn't mean anything. i got to think with longevity. You understand, that's what our enemies do. Our enemies, they have, they have nothing else to look forward to like we do. So they continually think naturally and they think with longevity. We need to start thinking with a little more longevity. Number three, and the use of carnal weapons. What has this produced? Well, 
We use carnal weapons because now that we don't believe the power of God shows up anymore, supposedly, we resort to the carnal. So, so we, try to, we try to banter with people with just our intellect, with just our reasonings. We think, we think just if we get involved politically, and I'm involved politically, I'll say that again. I am involved politically, but I have absolutely zero confidence that changing the resident of the White House ultimately fixes all that's wrong. I mean, it may be a problem, but it's not the whole problem. In fact, problems have both D's and R's at the end of their name. And I'm just a voice that's like a big stick in their side. Because the issue isn't getting more Republicans in or getting more Democrats in. Because they're all carnal. I'm not saying all. Some, some may be good, righteous people. I'm just simply saying is, is that's not, that's not the end game. But that's what we think. We've tried that folks already. And you know what? We still, we still haven't seen our society change. Whatever happened. I'm just calling this out. Church needs to pray. And we're going to, we're going to pray. We're escalating prayer as we get towards the end of the year. And you know, we always do our 21 day fast in January. But the church needs to begin to value intercession together. Listen, the upper room didn't happen when one person got a good dose of Holy Ghost. It happened when a gathering took place. God outpoured. They went into the streets of Jerusalem and Jerusalem began to change. So we've got to get a hold of these things. Now, how do we break out of it? This is the end. I'm done. Three things quickly. How do we break out of this? Number one, we got to refocus on what is reality. Verse 26 in that chapter, this is a great passage here. It says, Then David spoke to the man who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is, I love this phrase, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Isn't that interesting? Because... The, when David said this, you see, you have to understand circumcision was the covenant mark amongst men. You understood who served God and who didn't serve God by virtue of circumcision. That was the covenant mark that indicated attachment to the one true God. And so David literally says here, he says, who is this uncovenanted Philistine? Who is this Philistine who doesn't carry the mark? He doesn't carry understanding. He doesn't carry anything necessary for victory. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that would even dare to taunt us? David didn't see a giant. He saw an uncircumcised Philistine. David understood he was in covenant with God. The giant wasn't in covenant with God. Can I suggest to you this morning that all of your giants and all of our giants are not in covenant with our God? They are not more powerful than your God. I don't care if they're nine feet tall and they can handle 150 pounds of armament. Get a grip. God is in covenant with you. Who is this uncircumcised media? Who is this uncircumcised government? Who is this uncircumcised educational system? Who is this uncircumcised boss? Who is this uncircumcised person that they would dare taunt a soldier or the army of the living God? You got to refocus what reality is, folks. You've lost your reality. We've lost our reality. God is amongst us.
I'll say it again. We win. Number two, you got to get a mandate. Verse 29, it says, David said, what have I done now? Because Eliab, his oldest brother, his, his brother started just telling him, just, you, you know, you're just, you're just this little peep, pipsqueak. Just get away. Get away. What are you doing? You're embarrassing me. You're embarrassing me, boy. Just go on. I'm trying to, trying to run him off. Accuses him of pride. Accuses him of insolence. And David says, what have I done? What has he done? He just told the facts. This is an uncircumcised Philistine. And we're in covenant with God. What have I done? I've not done anything except tell you the facts. And then he says, is there not a cause? Is there not a cause here? When people try to minimize your confidence, like Eliab did to David, then remember, we've got a cause. David had a mandate. There were some causes that were worth stepping into the valley and picking up five smooth stones. Every challenging circumstance you face is a test. Every time you face a giant, it's a moment you have to ask yourself, am I going to live in my theory or am I going to live where this stuff is real? And there comes a moment when we have to realize that there are some causes that are worthy causes. Keeping a culture salty for my children and my grandchildren is worth the cause. They should not be handed off a hostile culture because you and I would not arise and go to the Valley of Elah. They should not have to inherit being slaves to the Philistines because you and I wouldn't arise and pick up a stone, get rid of our carnal weapons, pick up the spiritual weapons and begin to do what we know to do in order to win some battles. We got to break out of that lethargy and apathy and understand we've got a mandate. We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. This world wouldn't function without us. The moment we're out of here, this world's chaos. The only thing that keeps this world with some sense of order is the church. While you hand it over to the Muslims, go look at Afghanistan and Saudi Arabia and Egypt and Turkey. You want to see what it'll look like? You go and give it to the Philistines. That's what it looks like. Give it to the church. We'll educate them. We'll hospitalize them. We'll save them from the mama's womb. Come on now. There are some things that are worth the battle. We have a mandate. And finally, number three, you got to rekindle what you've already seen and done. Verse 36. And this is such a great story. This is what David says, because they're questioning him now, saying, you're going to go face Goliath. Really? He's nine foot tall. He's a man's man. You're a pipsqueak. This is what David says in verse 36. He says, your servant, meaning himself, has killed both lion and bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. Seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. See, this is what David did. He just looked at Saul and he looked at everybody and he just reminded them and he reminded himself. This isn't the first battle I've been in. I, I had a few other battles, not nearly as significant probably as this one, but I've had a couple others along the way. I had a bear show up one day out there on the sheep field. Caused me... Some consternation. 
I killed it. Then maybe a year or so later, had a lion show up. I think word got out amongst the animals. Might not want to go there, but about a year later, it all kind of died off. A lion showed up. And I killed it. I suspect if you really think about it, that if you were a Las Vegas odds maker, that David probably didn't have the odds with him with the lion or the bear. I suspect if you were betting that day on whether David could take the bear and take the lion, the lion and the bear might have gotten the odds that day. But truth is, David has a, had a resume already built of miracle moments. He'd already seen God move in, in a little bit smaller venues, but miraculous nonetheless. And he speaks this thing out as he's facing his Goliath. And he begins to say in these type words, if God would do it for me there, he will do it for me here. If I'm in covenant with a God before a bear and I'm in covenant with God before a lion, I'm still in covenant with God before this Philistine. This week is uh, the week of our ninth birthday as a church. We are literally going into our 10th year together. We, we have faced Goliaths. We have been taunted by Philistines. Trace mentioned there's some that betted on our demise and we've just outlived everything. Sometimes the biggest miracle you've got is you've just outlived it. I remember when, when banks, we were about six months old and I, I needed $75,000 in order to finish up. I think it was this building here. We were just about 75K short. Well, probably about a year old. And uh, I just didn't want to go to the people one more time. So I went to the bank, our bank. And I asked them, would you just give us a short note or something for $75,000? It wasn't really a lot of money. And the bank came back and said, no, no, we're just not going to do 75000 I said, 75000 You're just not even going to do that? No, we're just not even going to do that. And I'll never forget walking out, saying to myself, well, you know what? I don't need you. All I need is him. And I just shared that story with the group. And you know what we did? We just let God move. And $85,000 came in on one Sunday. And we just finished it by cash. I, I mean, I... I I want to say this right, because sometimes you put faces, and I, I want to be careful how this gets said. I, there's a lot of people down at the bank I, I love and like, but the bank system is an uncircumcised Philistine. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that would taunt the armies of the living God? I could, I could go down the list. The resume, the resume legacy has... Cordish, Cordish Company, the ones that own this mall, they didn't even want us in this mall. And where are we today? In this place. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that would taunt the armies of the living God? There are days I wonder what in the world or who in the world 
challenges us so to move to another location, a permanent location. And, and, and I want you to know I've done my best. I really have. I've, I've retained my Christianity up to this point. In, in every conversation, you'd have nothing to be embarrassed by it with your pastor. I've been sweet and nice, remembering these are people who, for all I know, they're having issues. My wife's interceding on a daily basis for me. And there, there are days that I just, I just want to reach into a phone line and just grab somebody by the neck. Can I just, and in fact, I'll just, I'm going to tell on myself. Is it okay if I tell on myself? Every now and then it's probably good to tell on yourself. I, told, I was talking to my land engineer the other day. I finally got the anointing to get this thing done. And we are so close. I'm telling you, I have been on the phone several times a day, every day for the last week. And we are so close to pressing through this thing. But I was with my land engineer the other day and I was a little exasperated. Still a Christian, a little exasperated. And I said to him, I said, listen, I'll call Rocky D. Rocky D's a friend of mine. I'll get on the radio and I will let everyone know. I will, I will shout it from the housetops. I was thinking of every verse I could at that moment to justify just shouting it out on the housetops and just let's get this, you know, and, 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 and he was laughing and it was one of those kind of conversations, you know, where you really aren't serious, but you're kind of serious, you know, but, but, but you're just, you're just exasperated. And, and, and I said, you know, just, you know, keep working on it. I'll do stuff on my end. I'm not going to do that. And I hung it up and, and, and I shared it with my wife and, and, and she was, you know, the voice of the Holy Spirit came through my wife's lips. And she said, you might want to think about that Rocky D thing there a little bit. And so I I did. I kind of backed up on that. And then it dawned on me. It dawned on me. Listen, you you can't use carnal weapons in a spiritual battle. I understand there are times you use your carnal weapon and you feel better. And that's the only reason you that's the only reason you wielded that sword. It just felt good. That's right. You just got fleshly and carnal, and boy, you loved every moment of that piece of flesh. But it doesn't win battles. No, not spiritual battles. And then then it dawned on me again. I mean, I'm going through all these things that are right before me. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that seeks to taunt the armies of the living God? I don't know about you, but I'm ready to pick up some stones. You ready to pick up some stones in your life? I don't... Stand, stand with me. Let's, I got to stop there. Stand with me. Yeah, it's that time. I have mercy. How come the anointing shows up at 1145? It needs to, anointing needs to show up about 1045. 